Hello! Welcome back to another episode of Against Japanism Podcast. Today's guest is Alex Finn McCartney, who will tell us about the history of the anti Vietnam War movement in Japan and the legacy of the Red Army faction, the Sekigunha, the mother organization of the Japanese Red Army and the United Red Army we previously discussed in this podcast. First, we discussed Japan's role in the Vietnam War and the significance of Okinawa as a quote unquote keystone for the US Japanese imperialism in the Cold War, as 2022 marks the 50th year since its so called reversion from the US to Japan. We then discussed some of the watershed events in the Japanese long 60s, such as a student protest at Haneda Airport to prevent Prime Minister Sato Eisaku's visit to the US. And how these events radicalized the anti Vietnam War movement from a citizens led, pacifist anti war movement to a students and workers led, militant anti imperialist movement. Although the distinction between these two forms of struggle was not clear cut, we discussed the meaning of and the discourse surrounding the Yodogo incident, where a group of young militants from the Sekigunha. Hijacked the plane and went to North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and asked whether the event was simply a farce or a productive lesson for revolutionary movements. We contextualized the emergence of the Sekigunha within the broader mass opposition to the Vietnam War. We specifically highlight its theories of the World Proletarian Revolutionary War and the international base area. As well as how we conceptualize political violence. Throughout our discussion of the Yodogo group and the Sakigunha, we highlight the importance of understanding the theory and ideology of these revolutionary organizations as they are before criticizing and passing judgment on them. While the mainstream media do just that by pathologizing them along gendered and racialized lines. We discuss how the Sekigunha in Japan, the Red Army faction in West Germany, influenced each other, and how these two societies' relationship with US imperialism through NATO and AMPO aided the parallel existence and solidarity between these two organizations. We conclude our discussion by talking about what the history of the Red Armies and the militant global 60s. Tell us about the national question and internationalism. If you like what you hear in this podcast, please subscribe to my Patreon andor make one time donation to my GoGet funding page. Without further ado, here is an Against Japanism interview with Alex Quinn McCartney. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Alex Finn McCartney. I'm currently a postdoctoral、uh, associate and lecturer with Yale University's Council on East Asian Studies. And、uh, I'm an historian、uh, not only of Japan's left in the 1960s,、uh, but of the transnational movement against the war in Vietnam. And I also focus on radical groups in West Germany in the same period. Cool.、Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Alex. Um, Thank you for inviting me, yes. <laughs>、uh, so, you published a chapter 
uh, in an edited volume about the uh, opposition to the Vietnam War. Um, how did the Vietnam War affect Japan and Okinawa? What was the nature of the cooperation between U.S. and Japanese imperialism at this time? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about the Vietnam War not just as you know, a moment in uh, the history of decolonization or the history of East Asia, but also, you know, increasingly looking at it in the terms of global 1960s history. And, and really, there probably isn't an event in the 1960s that's sort of more affecting to so many people around the world than the American war in Vietnam. Now, you know, a lot of different places around the world see different movements against the war. Um, you know, part of that article that you're referring to, excuse me, the book chapter that you're referring was in an edited volume that for the first time is attempting to sort of look at this in a holistic manner. But, you know, Japan is really different in a lot of ways than any of these other places that are having these protest movements. In a lot of ways, you know, it looks very similar to the United States or Western Europe. Uh, you know, a lot of the images that we have of Japan's anti-Vietnam War movement are either these uh, peace demonstrations uh, led by citizen groups or radical students. Um, and, and in that capacity, it's actually very, I think it looks quite similar. It, it, it's very legible in the same way. But what does set Japan apart from a lot of those other places is just how directly Japan, the mainland, and islands like Okinawa are so deeply tied to the long-term U.S. military presence after 1945, and how that long-term military presence really uh, uh, interacts with war and society in a couple of different post-war, uh, Cold War era uh, conflicts, but specifically Vietnam, you know, in a very similar way to the Korean conflict. Um, Japan as a country economically gains quite a bit from the U.S. participating in the war. Um, you know, these sort of requisitions from the military, the way that the economies around these U.S. bases, the number of soldiers just going back and forth uh, from the Japanese mainland back to the United States to other places around East Asia. All of these things have a direct effect on the Japanese society and economy. But in a larger sense, too, although it was very, very controversial, and although the Japanese government was sort of loath to admit it to the public in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, one of the largest buildups the, of the U.S. military in the entire world is in Japan, and a lot of that is in Okinawa. And if you're a radical, um, it doesn't take you that much <laughs> to notice the fact that Okinawa is in this incredibly strategic place in the Pacific to project American military power uh, throughout the region. And in fact, the American military and the government uh, are, are quite explicit about this uh, during uh, this period, and I think continuing in a lot of different ways. Okinawa is called the keystone of, of American strategy in the Pacific. It, <laughs> they write it on the license plates uh, for American uh, uh, base uh, uh, automobiles. And it, it really is this sort of, mo but this place uh, that, although it's not explicitly intended, and, and, and although the U.S. military says that they're never going to do it, um, a, a sort of forward frontline base for what happens in Vietnam. And there's a couple of incidents where that, you know, in 1965, a bunch of bombers uh, get lost uh, in a storm as they were returning from a North Vietnamese bombing raid, and they land on Okinawa. Now, that 
could be plausibly denied as participating in the war. But a lot of the Japanese public, you know, those that are not very moderate and those that are very radical, see this as a participation in the war directly. And this is not even to get into the issue of what happens later, which is that there are rumored and ultimately confirmed uh, nuclear weapons being stationed on Okinawa and, and chemical weapons. You know, it, there are a lot of really close things that uh, sort of directly implicate the American military and American imperialism in Okinawa that, and there are a lot of things that, that sort of implicate it by association. And all of these things are happening at a moment in the 1960s where there's sort of overlapping protests about Vietnam, about military bases, about nuclear weapons, chemical weapons on Japanese soil. And they all come sort of to a head in a very interesting way in Okinawa. Yeah, um, thank you for that uh, um, outline. And uh, yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize that uh, yeah, Japan was not only physically hosting uh, the US military facilities, you know, of course, a uh, very much uh, really explicit way of uh, supporting the war, um, providing logistics and infrastructure uh, for the mass genocide of the Vietnamese people, but also Japan benefit also economically, right, from right. Uh, the Vietnam War, but also previous to that, the Korean War. There's a Chosen Tokuju and this is also Vietnam Tokuju. So I think the very quick and uh, sort of giant leap that the Japanese economy had, like how sort of reemergence of Japan as an imperialist power, right? right? Like imperialism yeah. being the, the highest stage of capitalism, right? Exporting capital to overseas and uh, the resources and labor power and such. And uh, and in the military industry was was a huge aspect of that as well. And yeah. um, and Okinawa as well. I think it's you know this year is the fiftieth anniversary of the the so called reversion of Okinawa to to Japan from the U.S. And there has been lots of media coverage here in Japan. But yeah, this aspect of history is not very discussed, right? How um, Okinawa was was used as a keystone. Yeah, you know, it's also, yeah. the reversion is really interesting because some of the more radical moments in Japanese uh, anti-Vietnam War protest or anti-imperial protest happen in the late 60s or early 70s. And it's interesting that reversion is coming at the same time. Uh, you know, it's negotiated by Sato and Nixon administrations uh, in 69, and then it takes place in 72. But, you know, the debate among left-wing groups at this time, because as we should back up and of course mention, uh, Okinawa was the site of a major battle in 1945, uh, excuse me, during the Second World War. And then since 1945 on through uh, 72, it was, it was an American <laughs> you know, colony. <laughs> uh, but the reversion of Okinawa back to Japanese control, there's a debate that's going on in the sort of spring of 1969, uh, where this massive uh, protest in April called Okinawa Day, uh, where you know, a number of groups uh, that are on the left are given permission to protest, and a lot of groups that are on the left are uh, protesting uh, of their own volition. But the debate there is really interesting, where it's between the reversion of Okinawa, reverting to Japanese control, 
and what some groups start arguing for, which is the liberation, um, kaiho, of, uh, of Okinawa. And the distinction there, I think, is really important because it speaks to a number of different aspects of this moment in Japanese radical history and also the effect, I think, of what the long-term anti-imperial debate about Okinawa, or excuse me, about Vietnam says about how it affects protest. Because there are a lot of groups, some in Beheiren, which is the citizens' movement against the war, um, which starts in 1965, and some of them in, in different student factions. Some of those are debating about whether Japanese imperialism is being also brought up is also being promoted by the concept of giving Okinawa back to mainland Japan. The idea that some this is simply trading one imperialist ruler for the other. And that same discussion about, well, okay, if you have bases on Okinawa, does that not then allow for the regeneration of imperial penetration into East Asia? Is that not a pointed directly at some of the more important worker states, uh, as they were known by many of the radicals, uh, the, in the Northeast Asian region. And I think it's a really, it, it's, it's done almost, and, and we would call this almost a third world-ism. And I know that that sounds pejorative, of course, but in, in a really academic sense, analytical sense, you do get a lot of discussion from some of the groups in Japan who've been protesting the war in Vietnam and saying, uh, uh, you know, victory to the people of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, and saying, okay, well, we can see that the Okinawans are also an oppressed people, and victory to them in their struggle against both American and Japanese imperialism at the same time. And it, it really is an interesting sort of, I think, interaction between a lot of these discourses going on at the same time. Um, yes. Um, yeah, that's a really important point. Or, you know, even before the U.S. control of Okinawa, uh, it was a Japanese colony starting from the late 1800s, right? And, um, and I'm reading about uh, East Asia anti-Japan arm, uh, arm front, uh, one of the... Oh, yes, of course. Uh, urban guerrilla organizations in Japan at the time. Yeah, they had the analysis that, you know, Japan... Uh, yeah, like Okinawa, both Okinawa and Ainu are uh, the internal colonies of Japan. Yeah, actually, uh, one of my favorite documents that I found as a part of my research doing this project uh, was a student pamphlet that had, you know, it was printed, but it had written all over the cover, you know, different victory, you know, different uh, uh, statements in support of uh, different uh, liberation struggles around the world. And you have the, you know, the ones that you would really imagine, Southeast Asia, Latin America, Africa. Um, but then there were a couple that were, one that you don't see as often in that sort of context, like basically put next to each other, is the Ainu one. Um, and I also saw one uh, for uh, you know supporting the Inuit people of North America in their struggle against Canadian imperialism. And I really thought that that was an interesting the, the sort of global sense of being part of all these struggles and being able to link these struggles was, I think, very, very much well documented in these students saying, okay, here are all the struggles that we see as very similar, and we're going to relate them back to our sort of local, even past imperial uh, ideas about our own situation. Yeah, that's fascinating. And yeah, it's, I think it's uh, really important to have the internationalist perspective and also like understand the movements how international 
these movements were, right? Often these social movements often uh, understood narrowly as a sort of national phenomena. But yeah, these groups are really striving for social change at the global level, not just at the local or national level. Um, I want to sort of back up a bit and talk about the aspect of, that you talk about in your book chapter. Uh, you discussed the evolution of the opposition to the Vietnam War from a pacifist anti-war movement and a militant anti-imperialist movement. Uh, you draw a distinction there. What were some of the watershed events that uh, influenced this change? Uh, who were the actors involved? Uh, you mentioned Behalin earlier, uh, and there were other organizations as well. How did they develop their movement strategies in response to these events? Yeah, Behiren is probably I, one of the, the groups that, and one of the sort of aesthetics uh, of protest, this Ximin uh, citizen protest uh, that comes out of the 1960s and is, is often presented as a sort of quote-unquote correct way to affect social change in Japanese society. It is often, I think, juxtaposed against radical students or radical young workers as a way, and, and certainly urban guerrillas, as a way to say, okay, this is a peaceful protest. This is the way to do protest in post-war Japan. What some other scholars have pointed out, and what I think is also very interesting, is that, well, first of all, uh, Beheden is, is a, a, was a deeply non-homogenous group. From their founding in 1965, um, as a single-issue anti-Vietnam War group through the mid-1970s, when they disband, you basically, as long as you committed yourself to being anti-war and called yourself a Behaden group, you could, you could basically be part of Behaden. And so that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chapters around all of uh, the archipelago. Now, I think what it's interesting to note, though, is that Behaden is not always a pacifist organization. And in fact, a lot of the major leadership, even though they actively, one of the major features of Behaden is they actively attempt to not call for uh, revolution in kakume, in the you know, Marxist terminology. But they're definitely not arguing that the war should simply end. Most of these Behaden leaders are really saying that it's not just that we want the war to end, we want the Vietnamese to win, um, which is uh, you know splitting hairs in some capacity, but it's certainly not a nonviolent war is terrible, or war is bad on its face, just purely, it is also saying, okay, the Vietnamese have a right to the kind of war that they are waging for their own liberation. So 65 is really a, a big watershed moment for fully Japanese, all of Japan's anti-war movement. You see Behaden, but you also see the emergence of a young workers group uh, who go by the name of Hansen. Now, Hansen was a single issue group themselves, uh, specifically trying to fight against the normalization treaty with South Korea, which had taken years and years and years uh, with the Japanese government for the colonial legacy. But they argue that they see this normalization treaty as a moment of Japanese imperialism being revived as an economic force rather than a military force. And the emergence of these two groups, which eventually start to have very similar views about where Vietnam and the Vietnam War fits into the schemas of their own uh, worldviews are, are really very important. And many of these events, I think, seem to be a little bit 
maybe a little bit cliche at this point with as much of the explosion of, of Japanese 1960s work that we've had recently, which is fantastic. But 1967 is another year of really important moments for the anti-war movement in Japan, when at one point, Beheiren, as a more radical act, uh, aids four servicemen on the USS Intrepid, which is docked in Tokyo Harbor. Uh, they allow, uh, allows them to uh, go AWOL off of their ship and then eventually smuggles them from uh, Japan into uh, neutral territory. And they really become these sort of deserters who, who are this model of being an, a GI, an American soldier against the war and these the way that you can uh, fight the American military from within. And they're published in anti-war GI papers all around Europe as well, all around the world and the United States. They become these, these big figures. And this is also uh, a moment of student protest that is really important for the internationalization of Japan's anti-war movement. They certainly had been bringing speakers in uh, in the six, late, mid to late 60s. But in October, a group of a couple hundred students uh, attempt to prevent the Japanese Prime Minister Sato from visiting South Vietnam and uh, the United States, among another uh, couple of stops on a diplomatic trip. And how they attempt to do this is that they try to go to Haneda Airport, which sits on this uh, man-made island just off of the mainland in Tokyo. And they try to actually actively sit on the runway and prevent the plane from taking off. Now, what happens is a struggle with riot police uh, on a bridge that lasts a couple of hours. And there are a number of injuries, including one student who is killed in the struggle. But this is a moment in which the students move from a protest movement to what they're calling a direct action movement and, and certainly employing what they are now referring to as counter-violence. That is, violence that is used against the state when the state is using its own violence against them. And what you come out of this is that it, this faction, this, this alliance of three factions of Japan's student movement, which is known as Zengakuden, uh, this three-faction alliance, uh, Sanpa Zengakuden, come to Haneda Airport carrying long staves, uh, which they called gebabo, and wearing helmets. And this image, uh, which was a practical way, uh, this, this costume, uh, which was a very practical way of protecting oneself against riot police, also becomes a real uh, costume, not in a derogatory term, but a way of signifying both what your faction within Zengakuren is, because there are many, 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 many factions. Uh, it wouldn't be the Japanese left uh, in the 60s or otherwise if there was not a lot of faction going on. Uh, but this is also how Zengakuren factions a sell themselves to the rest of the world as sort of this heroic figure of uh, fighting against riot police in the streets. And also maybe a romanticized, somewhat orientalized often image for the rest of the world to sort of say, okay, here's, here's what Japanese direct anti-imperialism looks like. And that I think is very crucial to some of the stories that uh, I tell in my work and that we'll maybe talk about later. And, and these are moments, I think it's also important to note that, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the Japanese Vietnam War movement, uh, anti-Vietnam War movement is happening in sort of concentric circles on top of cycles of really important post-war protest. And 
the ones that I've talked to are specifically Vietnamese war focused. But in 68, a nuclear powered uh, American aircraft carrier attempts to dock in Sasebo in Kyushu. And this event, which is often cited for the fact that it, it sort of aggravates the, the Japanese nuclear allergy, um, is also directly connected to the fact that this fleet is going to be operating within the East Asian theater and is going to be part of the Vietnam War effort. Now, similarly, one of the other major moments of uh, Japanese student protest in the 1960s happens almost simultaneously with this, which is the occupation of campuses around the country and very, very visibly the Tokyo University occupation or the Todai Tosol. And while that is very much sparked by complaints about staffing, because complaints about student fees and other sort of very student-based protesting, it's also very much uh, framed by its participants in, we are part of the capitalist system. We are being used by the university to create knowledge. That knowledge is being used to do things such as create napalm with the science that we are studying. And it's being used to prop up a system of Japanese capitalism, which is exploitative and aimed at Asia and Southeast Asia. And so a lot of these discourses are not too far away from ideas about what's happening in Vietnam. And, and the final one that I'll mention right now, but I, you know, we'll talk about a little bit more of the sort of international uh, conferences in which uh, uh, really a lot of the ideas about a global counteraction come from. But it's also the Japanese 1960s are bracketed by two mass protests against the uh, signing and, rever and uh, renewal of the Japan-American Security Treaty, or ANPO, as it's, it's abbreviated in Japanese. And ANPO in 1960 is, I think, still the largest uh, protest movement in Japanese post-war history. In 1970, it's, it's certainly not a, the same kind of protest, but it is framed much more in a anti-imperial global idea about what the Vietnam War means and what Japan's role in propping up American imperialism throughout the globe. So you can really see, and, and we of course talked about that previously with Okinawa, you can really see how Vietnam, because it, the war, because it takes, you know, the American uh, involvement is, is almost a decade. The war itself is almost, uh, is even longer, of course. And, and you can really see how its discourses affect other ideas about uh, protest in Japan and how those other protests in Japan are also you know, seen in almost in its shadow in many ways. Yeah, there, these were really intense moments of class struggle and militant protests. Um, but I think you touched on a really important point that, uh, you know, there's often sort of this binary between uh, this peaceful citizen movement uh, versus uh, sort of a fanatic uh militant urban guerrillas right and this uh this narrative of failure around the united mm -hmm. red army that uh that i talked up previously with other guests on this podcast um but it was very much a mass movement right like it was a there's a massive public support for these protesters and especially that you know the violent police depression that, that these these movements face really contributed to the increased public support for these movements. Yeah, I also think that I mean, there's a lot to say about this as well, where I, you know, a lot of even some of the more, some of the people who are the most radical, um, you can think of a lot of the two, you know, at least two figures I can think of who are part of uh, Nihon Sekigun, who go to the Middle East, you know, found their way through into political action 
either with Behaden or sort of thinking about Behaden. Um, and it's not to say that there needs to be a binary about, you know, well, there were the good citizens doing nonviolent work and then there are bad urban guerrillas or bad students. But there's a, so much cross movement uh, pollination, pollination in some of these places that it's very, I think it's very difficult to, to really pin down and say, okay, good and bad protest. But I also think, you know, to that end, you bring up a point that I, I want to make <laughs> overall, uh, which is that I think it's also not just in these late 60s protest movements that people make that value judgment. I've read in a couple of different places, too, where you can really see the idea that 1960 Ampol protests um, are the good protests. And at the end of 1960, um, these mass movements, you know, it opens up these ideas about democratization and liberalization uh, produces art and, and supposedly paves the way for the women's and the environmental movement, as opposed to put in direct opposition to the later radicals of the 1960s, uh, late 60s and early 70s, who are treated as these sort of nihilists um, and are treated as these, you know, they're committing violence for violence sake. And when you do see that, it's very often not really, it's either done, as I think you mentioned, just looking at Rengo Sekigun, the United Red Army, or it is said, okay, well, these Zen Kyoto joint struggle occupation movements, you know, they don't have any meaning behind them. And, you know, that's an intellectual <laughs> incuriousness to, to say that these are simply nihilist gangsters when in fact they have a lot of things to say about analyzing their world and what it meant. Yes, yeah, thank you for pointing it out. And another aspect of the, the, your, your chapter that I really appreciate it is that, uh, you know, people don't really take their ideas seriously, right? Like they, they really get focused on sort of the... Um, you know, they really pathologize these groups. And I mean, you know, I mean, some some of it is for good reasons, you know, especially around the <laughs> United Red Army and the killings of their own comrades and stuff. And, you know, that needs to be criticized. Yeah. yeah, they talked about, but still, like, often these groups, especially the Red Armies, really, uh, their, their ideology and their theory uh, is not really known, you know. They need to be taken seriously and understood and analyzed as they are. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard not to, I think Japan has a very interesting, similar, I think, problem to a lot of these other places in the 70s where they had more militant uh, armed uh, resistance movements. Um, I'm thinking of the Italian, the American, and the German, West German, I should say, context, where really the first round of these stories are told in a very true crimey fashion. And true crime by its very uh, genre is going to focus on spectacle. It's going to pathologize almost by its very nature. And so you have this pathology of the spectacle uh, that is, is very, very potent in what people are looking at. And it doesn't hurt, of course, that the women in these groups are overrepresented in leadership as compared to a lot of other organizations. And when you start uh, talking about women and violence and the femininity of violence, um, that has all sorts of other pathologies that um, I know that you have probably discussed on this podcast as well. Uh, yes, and um, this was how you know the the release of uh, Shigeno Busako recently. She came out of prison after nearly twenty two years, and to me, it's really just repeating this retired uh, <laughs> narratives about witch or like 
the queen mistress, of terrorism, the mistress of mayhem. Yeah, no mistress kidding. of mayhem, and you know this is, yeah, like nearly half a century later, still really, you know, reacting. And um, I, I think you, you call it, or you cite someone else calling it, the defense mechanism of the media to sort of uh, minimize or, yeah, like pathologize these militants and these um, these revolutionaries who had their own visions of you know what kind of world they want to to win and you know how you know they're thinking seriously about how to achieve that strategically and tactically so yeah um, you know it's yeah the the citation i have there is about um italian uh, women in the red brigades but i think in, in that author specifically talking about you know focusing on the femininity of the violence of protest violence as as making it as pathologizing as you say and then produce you know taking away its meaning and i think that in particular when you look at the international reaction to japanese radical protest violence and armed resistance, you, you, it gets doubly pathologized because this is not just, you know, it's not just maybe a woman committing this violence, but it's also, you know, a comment on, it's an orientalized or it's an immensely racist comment about what the world thinks about fanatical Japanese politics. And so, you know, the racialized aspect of what a lot of these groups say, especially uh, early on, is just like, well, this is completely incomprehensible. There's no way that these people could have any uh, critique about the modern world because of their race. And I think, you know, Japan in that sort of story of the 1970s um, has a really interesting place in the global history of these things, or I should say, sometimes doesn't have a place, which is maybe just as telling. Yeah, speaking of which, speaking of a spectacular um, action that was misrepresented by the media is the, the Yodogo incident. And you open your chapter with a description of the, the hijacking, right, by the the militants from the the Red Army faction, Sekigunha. Um, we're going to talk about Sekigunha as a group later, but can you tell us about what this incident was and uh, its significance in the broader opposition to the Vietnam War that uh, we we talked about? Yeah. So the Yodogo hijacking, uh, the Yodogo incident named so because that was the nickname of the Boeing 737 that these uh, militants hijacked. Um, it takes place in late March, early April, over a couple of days where uh, groups, uh, a couple of members of Sekigunha, Red Army Faction, uh, hijack the plane as it is traveling from Tokyo to Fukuoka uh, in the south. They land briefly, they release all of the women and children off the plane, um, and then they fly, uh, they demand to be flown to North Korea. Uh, and there's a, a lot of back and forth um, between the governments of Japan, South Korea, and uh, the United States. And what they attempt to do, what these governments attempt to do is essentially to try to, to deceive the hijackers. They land in Seoul and try to make it seem like they've gotten to North Korea. The ruse is very quickly discovered. And there's about, you know, I think it's, almost 100 hours on the tarmac in Seoul before all of the rest of the hostages are exchanged for Japan's Minister of Transport. And then the rest of the Sekigunha militants are flown to North Korea. And the story of what happens to the Yodogo group, who, the people who actually went to North Korea, is a really fascinating story, but it, it's perhaps beyond our conversation today. But a thing to keep in mind here is that in 1970, although hijackings became this huge 
phenomenon throughout the 70s and 80s. And it should be noted in, even in as far away as we are from 2001, uh, if you hijacked a plane in the 1970s, you were not going to be committing uh, suicide, not necessarily. Uh, the idea was to uh, get a political message out. The idea was to maybe also get money, uh, ransom the, the the hostages or the vehicle itself. So it was, but it was still very unknown as a political tactic. And the Yodogo incident itself is not only sort of broadcast almost live to Japanese audiences, it also is the front page news basically on every newspaper around the world, uh, certainly in the West German context and the American context, uh, for the couple days that the Yodogo is on the tarmac in South Korea, it's big, big, big news. Um, and it requires a lot of explanation about what might have been going on in Japan that a lot of the world wasn't really paying attention to. And, and if I may, of course, go on a little bit, um, Yodogo is, I think, a really interesting test case to what you and I were just talking about in a lot of ways. Because Yodogo, the Yodogo hijacking, if it's really discussed at all in a Japanese historical context in English, it is brought up either in the context of a sort of failure of the new left in Japan, uh, often juxtaposed directly with the Rengo Sekigun purge at uh, Asama Sanso, or it's treated as a farce. And I don't mean to, I, I think it's very tough uh, to think about it this way because the Yodogo hijacking actually had a lot of really farcical aspects to it. Uh, they, the hijackers didn't really know very much about uh, airline security, and so they, they had it in a first attempt that was abortive. Uh, there are stories that they didn't bring uh, a, a map of Korea with them and, and asked the the. Uh, South Korean security forces for a map. Um, they, you know, there's a couple of other sort of anecdotes about this, which I think are really compelling, but it does lend itself well to say, well, okay, these were Japanese militants who were supposedly unsuccessful at creating a revolution in Japan as they had intended it, Un unsuccessful at creating a proletarian revolution. And so they're just going to, they're fleeing a defeat in 1970. And as much as they were certainly leaving Japan, what I'm trying to do with looking at Yorogo and its sort of more international uh, and more global context is to look at what did they think they were doing? You know, it, they didn't see themselves as fleeing. They saw themselves as participating in something and sort of taking a practice, something, something that they had put into theory and put it into practice in a way uh, that seemed very, extremely logical at the time. Yeah, I think that's a uh, that's a really important point. And there are actually, like we talked about earlier, they are acting on a theory, right? Acting. I mean, you know, these are these are really young men, right, of twenty something, and I'm getting close to forty. And you know, every time I study <laughs> these revolutionary movements in the past, like you know, I'm always blown away how young you know these people are. And um, yeah, there were definitely some like very amateurish aspects to it, but uh, you know they weren't crazy, right? They weren't as the media often portray them to be. I think it's also it's very unfortunate that uh, the weapons that they used to hijack the plane um, they had a replica gun that uh, was maybe not as convincing, but they also had a couple of you know ceremonial short swords uh, that they had stolen, and you know the second that there are 
Japanese hijackers in the international media, and if they have swords, you know, the obvious connections that every single one of the reports about this event calls them samurai. And it shows, I mean, it's just the, the, again, the Orientalism is, and the racism is just right front and center. But the fact that they were, that this is the, what they used to do the, the action itself, um, made it easy, even easier, unfortunately, to, to sort of throw this away as an event that really didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, I want us to talk about the Sekigunha, the group that these militants did hijacking came out of. So later on, they became their own group and, you know, they, they still live in the DPRK today. They refer to as the Yorogo group, right? And in this podcast, we previously talked about the, the Japanese Red Army and United Red Army. And, but we haven't really talked about the Sekigunha, the Red Army faction. And we'll be referring to them as Sekigunha because there's also Red Army faction. There was a Red <laughs> Army faction in West Germany as well. Yeah, I get um, confused sometimes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's really sort of talk, hard to talk about one Red Army without talking about the others. And I want us to sort of zoom into the Sekigunha Red Army faction. Can you tell us about the history of this organization in relation to the Bundo? And here's another organization that the Sekigunha came out of and other new left organizations. Yeah, can you tell us about the history of the Sekigunha in relation to these other groups, as well as its uh, ideological outlook uh, or theory that led him to carry out the hijacking? Yeah, absolutely. And the Yodogo group is on Twitter as well. I think uh, if you want to get a sense of, well, those that are remaining uh, in North Korea have a Twitter account, and it's very fascinating to look at. So I'm just going <laughs> to mm-hmm. hype their Twitter account, I guess. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's hard sometimes. I, I think it's actually very, very difficult sometimes to get a sense of exactly the sort of factional disputes that led to um, exactly the, the sort of factions that emerged in the 1970s, especially because, you know, some of the factions are, especially when they're talking to other groups, they're sometimes presenting themselves as, you know, are they the Bund? Are they a certain faction within the Bund? Are they these, you know, who are they really? I think it can be very difficult. And what is useful, I think, to note is sort of a a progression of the discussion of the necessity of a red army. And so the Bund, which had, of course, a a number of different factions within it, um, is part of a moment in the 1960s. In 1968, in August, uh, they and the student faction Chukakuha and a couple of other smaller factions uh, get together and they organize and uh, throw a conference at the Chuo University Auditorium, uh, where they call in, in early August called the, the sort of this international anti-war conference, and they invite student groups from around the world. Eventually, they get about a thousand Japanese participants and fourteen members of the international uh, solidarity movement. Uh, from the United States, from France, mostly. They invite the Germans, but unfortunately, the Germans do not attend at that point. And at that conference, there's a lot of debate about what about Vietnam specifically, but the real debate is happening because it is August of 1968. It's happening in the shadow of a couple of other events. 
And two of those events are the mass strike and protests in Paris's Latin Quarter in May of that year, and of course the Prague Spring or the Soviet uh, crushing of certain uh, socialist uh, reforms in Czechoslovakia. And when you look at the debate about what's going on in this conference, it's really where you see a lot of this crystallization of the idea that Vietnam, the Vietnam War is not just representing just one aspect of the post-war imperial world, but it actually is both the most indicative manifestation of American-led U.S. capital uh, around the world, and its military uh, being the gendarme, global gendarme for that, and also the way in which a number of the more ultra-radicals in the group view this moment as a sort of opportunity to sort of strike everywhere in the world at once. And this, of course, is deeply tied into ideas that Che Guevara had been uh, espousing the previous year at the Tricontinental. His famous speech saying, you know, uh, they, they quoted on the posters for the anti-war conference, you know, make two, three, many Vietnams. It's very much uh, sort of on their minds. So at that conference, a Kyoto University philosophy student um, whose name is Shiomi Takaya, who would later declare himself chairman of Red Army Faction, uh, he gives a speech of representing the views of the Kansai Bund, which is the uh, area around uh, sort, of sort of the district um, <laughs> of, of where uh, Kyoto University and Osaka is, they're considered the real, real radicals among the other student protesters, student uh, organizers there. And Shiomi gives a sort of tripartite view of the way he he thinks the world is organized and what to do about it. And in this speech calls for the organization of a global political party, uh, which will uh, represent a global proletarian movement. And he calls for also the waging of a global struggle, a global war, essentially, a global civil war. Uh, and this is very much tied into discourses that are very much, not just in Japan, but viewing Vietnam, viewing the moments that the world is in through the lens of the, the, the popular front and the Spanish civil war. And to the end that they, he's saying that we need to fight this global civil war, uh, that there needs to be a global red army to fight that war. Uh, not everyone agrees with this. <laughs> and some people find uh, Xiaomi in particular to be not just a radical, but also sort of uh, some accuse him of being rather dull and that this is just making the international again. Um, but it's very much steeped in a global view of how imperialism is sort of interconnected in a lot of ways, how these structures of domination are being propped up in different places, and specifically Japan being one of those spots. So Xiaomi and members of the other radical Bund are also at the same time uh, planning on reaching out to other organizations around the globe. Now, this is not something that's unique to Bund or even uh, the radical student movement. Beheren does this quite a bit as well. But what they do is that they write specifically in English to distribute their ideas to the rest of the globe. And one of those is manifested in one of the uh, factions of within Bund called uh, the Senki faction or the battle flag faction. 
publishes both an internal Japanese language magazine and also one that's meant for foreign consumption. So at the same time that this moment that they're sort of discussing the ideas about what should be done, they're also planning on also distributing these ideas around uh, the rest of the world. Now, Red Army Faction is basically in name only at that point, or excuse me, the Red Army is, is a theoretical point at that point. And through the struggle uh, through 1969, where both the Japanese state uh, begins to absolutely increase repression and violence against the student movement, uh, vastly increasing its uh, riot police capacity, increasing through 1969 these massive, massive, massive numbers of students being arrested at protests. But simultaneous to that is a phenomenon that within the Japanese student movement uh, is called uchigeba, which is, of course, a sort of portmanteau, portmanteau of uchi, the Japanese for internal, and geba, which is a phoneticized, abbreviated gebaruto or gewalt, uh, the German term for force or violence. And as other people have pointed out, Bill Marotti specifically, the idea using gebaruto was this idea to politicize violence uh, as force, as counterforce, as opposed to using uh, other idea, other other words that might be considered sort of like you know anarchic, riotous violence. They really wanted to show that they were um, focused on their politics. So. Uchigeba gets much worse, and so does the state repression. And out of this comes a sort of frustration and an idea that through the campus occupations that things are things need to be taken to a new level. And they've already theorized these ideas about how Red Army would operate in this global sense. And in September of 1969, uh, the members of Zenkyoto, these uh, revolutionary, excuse me, these joint struggle committees, uh, hold their first ever annual meeting. And there's about 200,000 students there, uh, or 200,000 people there who are representing different factions, different parts of the, war, of the country. And at that meeting is the first moment that you actually see what is called Sekigun Ha, or the Sekigun faction of the larger movement, uh, passing out, uh, you know, marching with their own helmets that say Sekigun on them, uh, having their own banners uh, that say, you know, start the, uh, the global proletarian revolutionary war. And they're passing out their manifesto, which was written in early September, uh, which is a declaration of war. And you do have this moment where now we actually have uh, a group calling themselves Red Army Faction. Uh, they're putting themselves in opposition to other factions. They declared themselves uh, ha, uh, a faction of this larger struggle. Um, and they began to sort of increase their internationalization of this as well. But that's, that's really the sort of very bare bones history of what the conception of Red Army is and how it becomes sort of institutioned, uh, becomes an institution. I wanted to ask you about sort of how they conceptualize violence. They published this statement, right? Like if you, uh, it says like, if you have a right to kill Vietnamese people, indiscriminately, you know, we also have the right to kill you. Um, you mentioned counter-violence earlier, but maybe can you tell us a little bit about how they theorize that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, that's the passage that I think is the most important piece of uh, the declaration of war. Um, and it's a longer, it's a much longer passage, but I think that it, it encapsulates not only just what their view of using violence 
was, but also specifically who they are very much focused on uh, in the international sphere. And yeah, the, the quote is essentially, you know, it, the manifesto is made out as a challenge to the world's uh, bourgeoisie. And it says, if you have the right to kill our Vietnamese comrades, we have the right to kill you. But also it goes on to say that if you have the right to crush the ghettos of the United States and kill the Black Panthers, we have the right to kill you. And they go on to say, you know, we have the right to bomb Jietai, the uh, uh, Japanese Self-Defense Forces headquarters, and to kill Nixon, Kiesing, Georg Kiesinger, who was the, uh, not for very much longer, but then the Chancellor of West Germany, uh, Charles de Gaulle, the, the leader of France, and to kill you in your homes. So it, what it's doing there is setting up a very clear challenge to the world, which is to say, violence is being perpetrated against Vietnam and violence is being perpetrated specifically against non-white people in the United States. And especially coming from ideas about decolonization struggles uh, in the so-called third world, but also ideas of self-defense um, coming from the Black Panthers, specifically from the United States and other Black power groups. It's saying very clearly if you if you get to commit violence and the world is extremely violent in places like Vietnam right now, then we can also commit violence against you. It's it's the it's the bringing the war home, but very explicitly. Now the difference is there are many among the student movement who, well, there are certainly many who disagreed with Seki uh, Ha, but there were also those who wouldn't go as far as that armed struggle, which is to say that counterviolence was in some ways, okay if you were fighting off a member of the riot police with your gebabble because the state was using violence against you and then you were justified in using violence against the state. In this way, it globalizes the concept of counterviolence. It says, okay, well, if you bomb Vietnam, if you drop napalm on the Vietnamese people, then you should also be prepared to uh, have violence meted out against you. But it's a much more proactive uh, view towards what violence in the global world looks, in the global context looks like, which is to say, we are now going to commit this violence against you. We're going to bring the war back to you in a way that you have perpetrated against others. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit crude. And I mean, I think, I think there's too much emphasis on killing, in my opinion, not so much of like making revolution. And coming up uh, with a strategy for it, at least within this particular statement. But I think it does highlight the important aspect of sort of the, uh, the inherently violent nature of imperialism and the justness of self-defense of oppressed peoples, right? And, yeah. and of course, the international I mean, it's struggle. In, yeah. It's incredibly provocative, right? I mean, I think that that's, um, you know, you do still in a lot of places in, in the world do get when Albert Big Man Howard from the Black Panthers visits uh, uh, West Germany in 1970, you know, he says, yeah, we'd kill, we'd kill Richard Nixon. And that was gigantic news in the West German press. You know, it's still the sort of performative aspect of it, I think, is really still there. Um, but I, you know, the logic of it is, as, as, as you say, maybe as crude as it possibly could be, which is if you can kill them, we can kill you, um, which they refine in other ways, especially uh, with what they think that they're doing or what they want, not what they think that they're doing, excuse me, what they want to be doing uh, with the hijackings 
um, and, and getting that sort of paramilitary training. But yeah, it is, it is a little on the nose, I think. Yeah. Speaking of the paramilitary training, they also had this theory called、um, International Base Area Theory,、uh, mm. uh, and that was how the Yorogo hijacking,、uh, you know, it was part of sort of putting that theory into action and also、uh, influenced the decision of、uh, Shigeru Fusako and others to go to Lebanon to work with the, the Popular Front for the Liber- Liberation of Palestine, PFLP. Can you tell us about this theory and what it was and you know, sort of your assessment of how, how it was put into practice? Yeah, that's, I mean, the ability for us to talk about that internal debate, I think, is the major、uh, crux of what Yodogo means for this, this history of Japanese radicalism,、uh, which is to say that, you know, again, I think that when the Yodogo hijacking is described and certainly Shigenobu's case, this is sort of Leaving Japan to go sort of adventurism. I think that that is, you know, on the left, that it's just sort of described as adventurism. On the right, or even in the center, it's sort of like, well, you know, they failed and so they're running away. The international debate,、uh, international basing debate, I, I think it's very interesting because it is often, or at least a lot of the people in that first Sekigunha generation of their thinking. Again, are thinking very much in a Spanish Civil War context. They're also very much looking at it in, they're looking for models in different、uh, revolutions around the world. And of course, one of the major ones that they are thinking about is the Cuban Revolution. And the Kansai Bund had also sent a representative who they gave a code name to、uh, to Cuba to sort of suss out the prospect of、uh, going to Cuba to train as a、uh, you know, military fighting force. But you know, with the technology that was available to them, it was actually a lot harder to get that far.、Um, hijacking a plane to Cuba would have been、uh, very hard for them. And they ultimately decide in, their, in this tripartite discussion about how the world is organized, how global imperialism is organized. You know, North Korea looks like a friendly、uh, state just next door、um, and certainly has good anti imperialist and very much anti Japanese imperialist. Credit,、uh, credit at the time. So the vision of essentially retreating to the Sierra Mastera, like, you know, like the Cuban Revolution、uh, in the late 50s, the idea that with this FOCO, with this group of dedicated revolutionaries、uh, who can inspire and commit acts of heroism and revolutionary.、Uh, uh, Praxis that, that that can, in fact, inspire、uh, the working classes and the proletarian、uh, revolution is, is certainly what's going on in the way that they're conceptualizing、uh, their decamping basically to North Korea. Now, I think personally,、um, looking back on it, I think that there's a lot to be said about the heroicism that is being read into this. And you can certainly look at The image of Che Guevara versus him in Africa, you know, the ability that these、uh, sort of vanguard groups, their ability to do what they, th- that they want to do, I think is often very difficult to actually accomplish that. Now, I also think, and I don't mean to get too far into you know, pathologizing the Odigo group or anything like that, but I think that there is an 
if there was a worse place for a Japanese radical to go in 1970 than North Korea, I, I don't really know where it would be. Uh, the official state ideology being anti-Japanese imperialist, um, they, they encounter a lot of problems that I don't think that they really had conceived of, of that particular destination. Um, and they do sort of recount later of being immediately disarmed about when landing in Pyongyang. And it really is, it becomes something that they were not really prepared to do. Now, what they were in the manifesto that they release in their magazine, uh, that's penned by the leader of the Yorugo group, uh, Tamiya Takamaro, who writes about this being the crystallization, the actual action of doing what they've been discussing, which is to say, you know, we talk about international solidarity. We talk about the needs of the fighting people of Southeast Asia, you know, and, and the Middle East, we are going to go to where they are struggling. And I think that that is an interesting, uh, that is very much lost in the discussion about what these internationalization of these struggles looks like. Yeah. I, I think it's also, it also applies to the what would later become the Japanese Red Army, right? In in Lebanon, in uh, Shigenobu and others. And um, they initially went there as a representative of Sekigunha, right? And uh, there are some issues, like there's some conflict with the sort of headquarter in Japan, the Sekigunha headquarter and some disagreements. I'm basing this on uh, Shigenobu's uh, memoirs. Um, yeah, of course. In these writings, she sort of questions the viability of the theory and how you know how successful it was, and um, she has a, this sort of assessment that it was a sort of, in practice, it was a way to subordinate th uh, third world struggles to the revolution in Japan, right? They sort of wanted to bring the war home, you know, with uh, this military training and such, and. Their ultimate goal was to have a revolution in Japan, and they're kind of instrumentalizing th these these national liberation struggles in other parts of the world. Um, but as you point out, there is a really more sincere aspect to it. at least there's some aspect of this theory that yeah, like I think it was the it's about building you know learning from the the colonized peoples in the struggle and. I think Fusako and others, the, the, those who volunteered for the PFLP, they really had sort of, I think they, being there and working with them really changed their mind, the role of national liberation, you know, the sort of the nature of the national liberation struggles. And I, uh, Fusako actually sort of become more conscious of that, the difference, right? Like, is it, you know, is the priority the global revolution or for the national liberation of colonized people from the imperialism? You know, what's the sort of, uh, strategic priority there and yeah. um, it was really interesting reading that but not actually like, like a lot of people know about the theory well i think it's also mm. you know you you do see that a lot of these a lot of these groups that did basically what Sekigunha and Nihon Sekigun, when the German side, Rote Armee Fraktion, which is their own red army faction also goes uh to the middle east at one point um and you do see that there's i think sort of an overall point that we can sort of gather from this, which we can talk about a little bit later, but the idea that this moment in the 1960s and 70s where the possibility of this revolution seems so close, but also that it can be, you know, tied into this global imaginary, that you you can take 
uh, what Jeremy Pressholt calls the, the sort of transnational imagination. You can take something large, global, like the Vietnam War, and you can apply it to your local circumstances and, and see yourself as sort of participating in both moments. You know, I think that that's a really interesting moment that that a lot of the, that I think that these urban guerrillas are actually acting on that sort of transnational, the, the promise of that transnational imagination in ways that most <laughs> other groups are not, um, that uh, many of these other solidarity movements are not. You know, they become these, especially uh, in later in the 70s, they become these sort of transnational, often, unfortunately, stateless people. But at the same time, you know, you do have to think about what is actually going on in the local, in places like the Middle East, you know, the, who uh, have their own concerns and are, are, you know, not necessarily the same sort of romanticized images of these, you know, what we could call third worldized, third worldist images. And, and some of these groups, some of these individuals in particular run into this problem and they're, they just, they're not prepared. They weren't prepared um, for what that was going to look like on the ground, as opposed to what that meant in theory or what that meant to them in terms of what they could imagine themselves being a part of. Yes. Um, I want to talk about, you mentioned the, the Red Army faction in West Germany. And um, we talked about sort of like going to the third world, North Korea and uh, Lebanon. But they also traveled, you know, they worked with uh, revolutionaries in other imperialist countries like the U U.S. and and West Germany. And you have another, uh, you, sh you sent me a draft of your paper about, I also actually attended your presentation on the subject as well. Some overlaps and some collaboration between uh, revolutionaries in West Germany and Japan. Uh, can you tell us about how that played out and what it tells us about sort of transnational imagery that you, you discuss in your writings. Yeah, and thank you for attending that talk. That's uh, I was <laughs> sort of surprised that you had done that, but um, I'm glad <laughs> that someone was listening. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the things, and uh, this to give it a very brief sort of intellectual biography of, of where that talk came from. Um, I had initially uh, trained as a German historian, but had Japanese language ability, and so. I uh, was sort of pushed by my mentors in graduate school very early on um, to look at the Japanese 1960s in conjunction, or at least in parallel uh, to the German 1960s. Now, initially, that project was, I, I conceived of it, I think, very naively as something that was going to be sort of a parallel history. That is to say that when you look at them on just like stacked up next to each other, just with the timelines, there's extremely similar things happening at the same time, you know, these ideas that might be parallel development. There's also a watershed moment of police violence against uh, student protesters in 1967 that becomes this watershed moment for the West German left in the same way that Hanida is sort of in retrospect in, in many of these radical biographies sort of viewed as this, this moment of political radicalization. But the what happened when I started looking at it a little bit closer is that the story of the uh, Red Army faction of Seki Ginha is actually also a story of transnational exchange with the German student movement in a way that I think actually explains or at least demonstrates a lot of what some of this international imagination looked like and some of this attempt for solidarity and where some of those networks go. 
And, and one of the major ones is Yodoko, because after that 1968 conference, the one in August where uh, Shiomi gives this uh, idea about this global Red Army uh, being necessary, necessary uh, Bund attempts to, the very next year in September of 1969, to hold a second conference. Now, they rebrand this as not just the international uh, Hansen, anti-war conference, but they call it a international Hante, anti-imperial conference, um, very much doubling down on the ideas about these global, uh, about Vietnam being part of this global imperial strategy rather than simply a war to be protested in itself. And one of the representatives that they invite with a manifesto in English, again, written as a sort of special edition to the Senki battle flag, uh, they invite the Black Panther Party for self-defense. They invite the American uh, Students for Democratic Society. By that time, the representative that goes is part of the Weatherman faction, uh, which will eventually become the Weather Underground organization, its own internal U.S. Uh, urban guerrilla movement. And they invite a far-left student uh, who was part of the refounding of the Communist Party as a new left organization in West Berlin by the name of Christian Zemler. And Zemler very much goes in and starts writing the, starts compiling the stuff about the, the Japanese left, very much from a Bund and uh, Chukakuha perspective, it should be noted, about ideas about Okinawa and ideas about Japanese re-penetration of uh, East Asia through uh, the security treaty, excuse me, through the normalization treaty. He gets a lot of the stuff, translates it into German. And the very same month that he releases his information about Bund and also very specifically meeting uh, Sekigunha, the Yodogo hijacking happens and it's front page news everywhere in West Germany and a number of uh, underground organization uh, papers start publishing about it. And so you, all of a sudden you have all this information about this seemingly extremely heroic um, action that's being seen in the same context as other global phenomenon. And ultimately, Red Army faction, Rote Armee Fraktion, with uh, its founding membership, would have existed as its own urban guerrilla movement, but they very obviously took the name Sekigunha, Red Army faction, Rote Armee Fraktion, and applied it to their own group. And this is something that a lot of other West German groups did. There was uh, solidarity groups calling themselves White Panthers or Red Panthers in, in seeing themselves as sort of in the same struggle as the Black Panther movement, which the Black Panther movement uh, did very much uh, appreciate and encourage. And there's a very famous uh, uh, urban guerrilla movement in the West German context to the Tupamaros West Berlin, obviously taking the name from Central and South American uh, regular guerrillas, not urban guerrillas. But the idea of actively naming their group this same sort of context uh, showed their their sort of inter imagined solidarity, you know, of creating uh, a a sort of global Red Army movement to be a, a part of a global uh, armed struggle against specifically the United States' imperialism, but in the West German context, the West German uh, imperialism and the same imperialism that had created the Holocaust in the past. And so, a lot of these discourses got mixed in very interesting ways in the same way that the international solidarity was happening simultaneously. Yeah, I think this sort of cross-pollinations and sort of influencing each other is uh, quite interesting. And, you know, West German 
like Germany and Japan had similar histories as well. Sort of the uh, the restoration of fascism under the U.S. imperialism, right? Fascism was not abolished, but reorganized to to fit yeah. the needs of the, the the Cold War and the U.S. imperialism. So, right. If you still have if you still have a capitalist West Germany, then you still in in many conceptions you still have a fat you still have a Nazi West Germany. Uh, it doesn't hurt that you have a bunch of actual literal Nazis still in charge of a bunch of stuff too. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, in Japan also, you know, the yeah. figures like Kishinobusuke was a you know the literal war criminal. Class A, uh, yeah, yeah, Class A. He you know he became prime minister. So yeah, and then also the sort of you know at first when I learned about the Sekigunha's theory about you know global. World Revolutionary War through the World Revolutionary Party, right? Sort of like the world, everything kind of thing, you know. Um, I guess I'm still somewhat skeptical of that. You know, I, I don't think we can bypass the national, right? Like I think, even though nation states are a capitalist institution, I think you know we can sort of just go straight to global, <laughs> but. Sort of, you know, have a sing singular inst institution, right? Like it's, you know, it's different to have like sort of the alliance or, you know, something like the common turn. But so I was sort of like I used to treat it as sort of the product of imagination. But you discuss in your paper that actually like this was sort of their attempt at coming up with this is kind of more or less accidental. But you know, this becomes sort of the global Red Army movement, right? And yeah. There are many urban guerrillas during this period. I mean, they're not all necessarily connected, but it was not entirely a, a, a fictional concept. Yeah, I think the the global party stuff. I mean, I I, I got to be honest with you. I don't. That's that is that is very difficult. I think to. I I don't think that there was a lot of discussion about what that would look like necessarily, um, and I, I do think that especially the fact that the first part of the equation of that three-part equation that came out was the army, uh, I think showed the priority of, uh, at least in the early 1970s, of what that anti-imperial strategy would look like. It also has a lot to do with the fact that Xiaomi and some of the other intellectuals of, of, uh, who were intellectualizing that had a lot of views about um, historical epochs and the inaugurated by the Russian revolution that I think when you consider what we would maybe think about our solidarity with the so-called then third world, I think has a lot, it, it does sort of clang. It, it really is, is really, you could make a critique of it that it is sort of forcing um, a oddly Eurocentric and, and Soviet centric perspective onto this world, even though they didn't really idolize the, the Soviet uh, model at the time. What, what I do think is interesting about the party aspect of it, though, is I think that there is also a moment of real, I don't know if it's cultural exchange or whether it's uh, sort of, I think one of the reasons why Xiaomi and Takai, uh, or excuse me, and uh, Tamiya are so interested specifically in this West German guy is that in their writings, they point out, they're like, this is a guy who has just refounded a communist party in his own country. And he is creating a, a new political party. We would like to talk to him about creating a new political party in other contexts. And so that is also, it's not just a sort of like, 
this is what the Germans are learning from the Japanese. The Japanese are also seeking out these sort of international connections to to discuss, you know, what these other movements around the what we could call the global north, or I think a sort of mutual first world movement at that time, what they can learn from each other. And, and just one more point, and I, I apologize for for talking oh, so much, okay. but. One of the things that I was surprised about, and I, I, I teach a course about urban guerrilla movements that uh, includes a lot of these manifestos that I have undergraduates read, and I taught a course on German and Japanese history in the, in the 20th century this last semester, and because Shigenobu was being released, I decided to sort of cannibalize a little bit of the week on women in Red Army factions, plural. And we reread a couple of we re, there, there's a good translation of the Declaration of War that just came out in 2018, and rereading it with these students specifically in the context of a German Japanese context, it's actually shocking how much West Germany is in both the Yodogo uh, Manifesto and the Declaration of War, and. Part of that is something that I elucidate in, in other places, which is that this global context, this global theory of sort of uh, imperialism that is not just uh, a Bund issue, but also shows up in a lot of places, even a lot of uh, Beheden documents, is that seeing Ampol as a sort of parallel to NATO in Europe and East Asia as these sorts of manifestations of, of control and these counter-revolutionary armies. And so the solidarity specifically with the West German radical struggle, uh, with the Japanese radical struggle of saying, you know, these are parallel uh, to each other, it actually shows up quite a bit. And I think that a lot of this sort of early Sekigunha discussion about what the US empire looks like in general actually has a lot of the sort of context of the West German aspect. And to, to a certain extent, I think that that also aided a lot of the solidarity between the two Red Armies in ways that you didn't see in a lot of different places. Um, you know, Weatherman or the Red Brigades in Italy um, have very similar aspects, and there is moments of uh, concerted action between these urban guerrilla movements. But you know, West German, the West Germans didn't call themselves Weatherman, <laughs> um, although they, I'm sure they considered it. But, you know, it, I think it, there is a place where these two, let me say this. I think very often it, the fact that there are red armies in Japan and Germany, if they are mentioned in parallel at all, are often treated as, well, these are just violent societies or even pathologized as violent people. and Or to say, well, they had a fascist past, so they're going to have a violent post-war. And I think that there is also something to point out that the very place that Japan and West Germany had within the U.S. empire, specifically the U.S. military base empire, really drives a lot of the sort of parallel ideas and then also a lot of the solidarity that you see. Yes. Um, I, I want to sort of end on a somewhat more uh, theoretical notes, um, also bringing it back to, to Japan somewhat, but still remaining global. But um yeah, so this this national question, right? I discussed it previously with Kevin Walker when I had him on this podcast. This uh, sort of the national versus international question was uh, very much persistent throughout the, the the new left period, and you know they debated 
whether to make revolution locally in Japan or internationally. And this was quite divisive and also what sort of drove,、um, uh, I think, it motivated the Shiganobu's decision to go to Lebanon、uh, or sort of like what she thought、uh, afterwards, you know, after going there. And also the,、um, the United Red Army as well. Like they, Sekigun had merged with Kakume Saha, like a revolutionary left faction who had、yeah. more,、uh, they were more nationalists, right? They're, they thought Japan was colonized by the US. And yeah, so basically the question of nationalism、uh, was very, very much a thing. And Sekigunha and also, yeah, the group that I mentioned earlier, East Asia, Anti Japan Armed Front, right? They're very much against Japanese imperialism. They didn't see Japan as sort of a, a victim of the US imperialism. So, yeah, what does the history of Red Armies and the militant global 60s、uh, tell us about the national question and internationalism? Sorry, this is a little bit of a big question. Sure, sure. Convoluted, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's, I think there's two ways to think about that. And one of them is just you know, very clearly to historicize the fact that you know, this is a moment. And I think you can't really understand、uh, a lot of these questions that are being asked、um, without looking deeply at how these groups were viewing their, their world. And what, when, they, when they looked at their world, and specifically、um, when these When Saki Gunha was looking at their world and was looking at where the most violence was, you know, it was in their own state, but in, when they looked at the world, it was Vietnam and it was, it was these other、uh, liberation struggles. And, and really, you, know, you can't divorce any of this from the images of these decolonization struggles, these revolutions、uh, in Cuba, in, in Algeria, and Vietnam, from motivating the, the dynamism of the international. From the sort of staid and stodgy and crusty、uh, international Warsaw Pact or, or the Common Turn or, or the international,、um, these ideas that, you know, within Japan, Japan is unique in、uh, a couple of different ways from the German context, but one of them is that there is a Communist Party. And the very fact that that Communist Party should, be, <laughs> should have ostensibly been working for that. Marxist、uh, revolution, and of course, gave up the、uh, principles of that、uh, at a certain point. You know, the dynamism really shifts to these international movements. And I think what's useful for us to think about, you know, that's, that's the historicized、uh, aspect of it, which is to say that I think it makes a lot of sense if I am a radical、uh, and I'm Either you know, reaching a headway with the amount of violence that the Japanese state is employing against me because they, it was massive and uh, uh, was also its own、uh, driver in the radicalization process. But if I'm looking at、um, my own struggle and I'm looking around and perhaps uninspired by the debates that are happening internally, and if you look abroad and you say, okay, well, look at these other places that have actually produced. These,、uh, these revolutions. And look at these places that are, are building societies, especially North Korea at the time, we could even say,、um, before、uh, the mid 70s, was looking like it was really succeeding in a way that I think is in- unintelligible to us now. And I think that that 
the national question there, I, I think, presupposes also uh, siloing uh, these movements at the time into their into their national borders when they were really they, they were viewing both the national the what we would call the local and the global almost at the same time. And I think that they, it's very easy for me to put myself into some to, to a younger a younger man's shoes, a younger man's uh, construction helmet, I suppose, in this context, and, and think about wh- where I would actually be inspired by by what was actually happening in my world. Um, great. I think that's a good place to end the interview. And yeah, thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the show. Um, before you thank go, you. yeah, before yeah. you go, can you tell us where folks can find your work? Certainly. Um, so I have a uh, article that is unrelated to any Red Army factions um, in the Journal of Contemporary History, uh, which is called uh, Hero Hitler on the Rhine, which is about the Japanese Empire Emperor's uh, 1971 visit to West Germany. Um, and then I have a recent book chapter that just came out in the in an edited volume uh, called Protest in the Vietnam War Era, very appropriately. Um, and that uh, should be available uh, both online. Uh, both of those are available online and in print, although online is significantly cheaper. And I am working on my book manuscript, which will talk a lot about what we've talked about today, but it has a, a number of different other aspects of these anti-Vietnam War movements and their sort of legacies going forward. Great. Thank you so much, Alex. Yeah, pleasure to talk to you, Koko. Thank you for listening to this episode of Against Japanism Podcast. Special thanks to my patrons on 8th Root Army tier and above. Magni, Mountain Echo 11, Christy Lin, Joma, Drew Harrison, Sean S., Aiden, and Andy. Thank you all so much. See you next time.